Grab your Bible. We're going to be in the book of Ezra, chapter 1. Ezra, chapter 1. Old Testament. You find First and Second Kings. Keep going to your right, First and Second Chronicles. And then you'll run into the book of Ezra. If you get to Nehemiah, you've gone too far. You're ahead of the game. We are going to go through Ezra and Nehemiah. While you turn, let me just encourage you. Uh, if you've been with us for some time now, you have... You have seen us walk through many, uh, many texts of the Bible. We've gone through Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Titus. Uh, we've gone through the parables of Luke. We've looked at the doctrine of salvation. We looked at the doctrine of sin. And so uh, I want to encourage you this morning, it, it, depending on how long you've been with us, you've gotten a chunk of Scripture. And I hear all the time the frustrations that you express, that I have expressed in my life, of not having as much of the word as we wish we had. Amen? Not having enough knowledge. Not having as much knowledge in the word and understanding in the word as we wish we had. And, and sometimes we look back at our, at our upbringing and wish it were better, wish it were more uh, biblical, wish it were more directed spiritually. And some of us just didn't have that. And so now we find ourselves, some of us, in a place where we say, I wish I knew more of my word. Let me just encourage you. We're starting Ezra chapter 1. We're going to go through Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to jump into Haggai and Zechariah. We're going to possibly even go into Esther. All these books written around the same historical time period in the nation of Israel. And so if you stick with us, okay, here's my point. If you stick with us through this, whether you're here or whether you're not here and you've got to catch up by listening to the podcast, whatever it is, you have an opportunity, okay? You have an opportunity here to get a chunk of Scripture under your belt. Now, unfortunately, I'm not the best uh, teacher you're going to find to do this, but uh, fortunately, uh, for my sake, there aren't many churches doing this, just going through and giving you chunks of Scripture, giving you a handle on them so that you can take them and live your life accordingly. And so stick this out, all right? Stick this out, and when we're done, you'll be able to say, even if you've just started with us, I've got a handle now on Ezra, I've got a handle on Nehemiah, I've got a handle on this historical time period of Israel, okay? Those who passed Jesus to us, okay? Those, that nation we received an inheritance from, okay? So stick with us. Ezra chapter 1, let me read the first four verses here. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation through all his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. We are uh, we're in the historical narrative of Israel. And let me catch us up. If you're not an Old Testament person, if if all you know about the history of Israel is what, uh, what you've learned from Charleston Heston. It sort of ends at a period long before this, okay? And so let me catch you up where we are here historically in the narrative, in the history of Israel. In about 587 
B.C., before Christ, the Jews, the nation of Israel, they were overpowered by what was the powerhouse of the day, the powerhouse in the land, the Babylonians. Okay? Uh, the Jews were at that time dispersed among the Babylonian Empire, and uh, their temple uh, in Jerusalem was completely devastated, destroyed, burned to the ground. All the stones were overturned. Total desolation to their people and to their temple. The Jews remained under the Babylonian uh, authority, under the Babylonian captivity, as we call it historically. They remained under that until Persia inherited them, literally, the Jewish nation. Uh, the Jews were under this Babylonian captivity for approximately seven years. 70 years before Persia inherited them. And uh, the king at the time that Persia inherited the Jews from Babylon was who? A guy named Cyrus. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Now let's talk about Cyrus for just a moment because in this passage, Cyrus appears to be a good king. Uh, from this passage, he appears to maybe even be uh, a Yahweh-fearing king. Perhaps uh, in verse one, you see that it says the Lord stirred up the spirit of this man. In verse two, it says the Lord gave him all the kingdoms of the earth. Also in verse two, it says that he was appointed by God to build God a house in Jerusalem. On the surface, this guy seems to be an upright king, even though he is a pagan foreign king, a king of Persia, not of Israel. Now under now in control of the children of God. On face reading, we might assume that he is a good king. You might assume that he is a God, a one true God-fearing king, a Yahweh-fearing king. But to understand Cyrus a little better, I'll need to explain to you a little bit about his uh, military and political tactics, okay? So hang with me here because I need to give you a glimpse into his approach as a leader of the, the political world that he was in charge of and the military world that he was in charge of as captives or slaves they would kill off the leaders or they would take the leaders of the families, the governments, and the religions of those new nations and they would disperse them. They would send them to different areas in different places. And so families were often broken up. Governments were often broken up. They wouldn't leave the leaders of either the families, the governments, or the religions of these conquered nations intact. Their tactic was to break all that up and separate them. Now, you've got to give them a little bit of credit. I mean, that seems wise. Don't leave the leaders together so that they can't bond together, uh, get uh, courage built up amongst themselves, and then rebel. Okay? And so you understand their tactic, that they would disperse all the people. They would either kill the leaders or they would separate them. Their goal was to, frankly, assimilate them out of their own unique identity. And so the Babylonian goal for the nation of Israel was not that they would continue to be a unique nation, but they would become just part of the Babylonian empire as a whole. And they would literally breed Israel out of existence, breed all the conquered nations out of existence. They would intentionally marry them off into other nationalities so that the uniqueness would be gone. And there'd be no, there'd be no cluster of Israel to rise up against Babylon. Well, Cyrus and Persia had a different approach. And this helps us to understand, come together, 
Continue with your government. Continue with the leadership that you have built, the infrastructure that you have. Continue with the religious practices that you have. Stay who you are. Sounds like a pretty, pretty good guy. The plan was, however, his goal was that if I, if I am kind in this way, if I allow them to be who they are, keep their identity, keep their families intact, keep their infrastructure intact, keep their religious practices intact, then his thought was they'll be happy and there'll be no rebellion. You see, the Babylonians separate them, don't allow a rebellion. The Persians, let them come together, let them live as normal of a life as possible. They know that we're in charge to have the least amount of trouble out of them. We let them be. We take advantage of their religions. We take advantage of their leadership. We take advantage of their infrastructure. Later on, when we see Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a leader in the nation of Israel, and he was made use of by Persia. Okay? They used the infrastructure that was already there, and their thought was, again, let's let them be, let's, as best we can, keep them happy, and there'll be no uprising. So now, to understand Cyrus, let me, uh, let me go to what has been uh, cited as really a great historical find. It is what's called the cuneiform cylinder of Cyrus. Some of you historians may have heard of this. It's a Uh, Let me put it this way. It's his political and military tactic. Listen to what he said. May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities ask Bel and Nebo for a long life for me. You know, you ask the question as you read Ezra 1, 1 through 4, what kind of guy was this? Was he a God-fearing, a Yahweh-fearing pagan king? Was he converted at some point? What was his stance towards Israel? Understand his tactics. Understand his approach. In his own words, we find that he does this with many different religions. For him to build a city for God, to build a temple in the city of God, it's not a strange thing, but it doesn't necessarily make him uniquely uh, Judaic or Christian in our terms. Are you following me here? That's not who Cyrus was. Cyrus said much of the same thing of Marduk, a Babylonian god. He used the same exact phrase that he uses here in verse 2 when he says that that god has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He gave credit to a guy named Marduk. A king, uh, I mean, uh, excuse me, a god of another nation. To appease him to obtain the blessing from as many gods as he possibly could in order to keep the nations that he conquered happy and to take advantage of whatever resources they could provide to him. He would embrace not only their culture, God that he could conjure up, that he could uh, act positively towards any people, any conquered people that he could encourage to go back and build their temples that the Babylonians had destroyed, anyone that he could get in his power, under his control, to pray to their gods on his behalf, he just thought was a bonus. He was a polytheist at best. The gods of the people he ruled, he ruled were servants to him just as the people were. Because they were an avenue for blessing, he thought the more the merrier. They were to him like a genie in a bottle. If I just rub this people the right way, if I keep them happy, if I do the right things with this people, they'll serve me better. If I appease their God, 
then I will be further blessed. Isaiah 45.4, God says of Cyrus that he would be used of God, though you have not known me. He did not know the Lord. He was not a convert to Judaism as best we can see. So was Cyrus a good king, perhaps? He was compared to the Babylonian king that the Jews had just come out from under. He was a great king. Was he a convert to Judaism? Most likely not. On the surface, he does what is for his own benefit, okay? He does what is for his own benefit and to his best interest. I.e., he said, are going to go out of their way to aid the nation of Israel to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, rebuild their infrastructure. That was the tactic. That was, that was how Persia worked. So is that the only reason Cyrus did this? Is that the only reason that Cyrus sent out by proclamation? That means that he sent out a herald, literally. He sent out someone who would go to every city and publicly announce by voice this edict. Let me read you the edict once again. The Lord, the God of heaven, incidentally, in all the post-exilic, all the books that are written post-Israel's captivity, the Babylonian slavery time, all the books in the scripture that are written, none of them refer to God as the God of the temple, of God of the earth. They all refer to God as the God of heaven. Why? Because the temple had been destroyed. The Shekinah glory had been removed. He no longer dwelt in the temple between the seraphim. Upon the mercy seat, he was removed. God was no longer on earth. He was in heaven. So thus, in the post-exilic books, you find this title for God, the Lord, the God of heaven. Cyrus proclaims this edict. He has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord and the God of Israel. He is the God. He did what he did for his own benefit. But the divinely inspired historical narrative, listen closely now, the divinely inspired historical narrative of Ezra tells a different story, a higher story, a deeper story. The real king to be noticed in these verses is not the king of Persia. It's the king of kings. You remember me telling you last week that these historical narratives in Scripture are not designed just to be objective lists of historical accounts. They have a greater purpose, namely to glorify the divine, to glorify the King of Kings. Ezra has a divine purpose. God, through Ezra, has inspired a divine purpose to his writing. The readers who would get this letter from Ezra, knew the Edict of Cyrus already. So there was no need for him to recount simply the Edict of Cyrus. They had already heard it. They knew that. The book of Ezra is not intended to be a historical recount of that edict. The book of Ezra goes deeper than that. He has a divine purpose. We find the primary purpose for the recording of this entire book in the opening verse. So let's go back to verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and here it is, underline this, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord. Anytime in Scripture, find perspective for his readers. 
We'll talk about why he does this in a moment. First, a couple questions we have to ask ourselves. Number one, what is this word of the Lord that he's referring to that needs to be fulfilled? Well, the next phrase answers that. The word of the Lord that needs to be fulfilled, he says in the next phrase, is what? It's by the mouth of Jeremiah. So we've got to ask ourselves another question. What is it that Jeremiah said that is now being fulfilled in Cyrus's edict? All right, so flip, turn to your right. Let's go to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25. Go past Isaiah, go past Psalms and Proverbs, past Isaiah. You'll be in Jeremiah. Let me remind you that these books are not in historical, chronological order. So when we go here to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah has written this that we are going to read almost 20 years before Israel was ever taken into captivity by Babylon. Okay? So this is a prophetic word even though it's to the right in your book, it comes before the account that we read in Ezra. Okay? Jeremiah 25, look at verse 1. I'm going to read through here. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. In the fourth year, it has come to me, and I've spoken it to you again and again, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, Turn now, everyone, from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever and forever. And do not go after other gods to serve them, to worship them, and to provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. And I will do you no harm, yet you have not listened, declares the Lord in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words. And here is prophecy number one that we're going to find in Jeremiah's words. Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will. It's coming in the future. You can bank on it. I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, It's a reference to Nebuchadnezzar. And will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about. And I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror. The end of verse 11. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror and these nations will serve the king of Babylon and we get a time limit. Seventy years. Now, none of that previous stuff has been good news for the nation of Israel. To say to the nation of Israel, because of your sinfulness, because of your unfaithfulness to me, I'm going to send you away. I'm going to let Babylon come in, wipe you out, spread you out. The only good news in all of this, and I'm not sure they understood it, how could they? with all that bad news, but God leaves this nugget of hope, this nugget of grace. He tags it on the end of that verse and he says, for 70 years, roughly two generations, point, I'll not let it be the end. Although you are unfaithful, I will be faithful to my promises 
long before you were ever around, the promises to Abraham, a land, seed, and blessing. I will not, I will not forsake my promises. So I'm going to send you away. Bank on it. You want grace, you want hope. Here it is. It'll only be for 70 years. Verse 11, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans and I will make it an everlasting desolation. I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it. All that is written is it you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Isaiah, a contemporary of Jeremiah, you remember who I mentioned earlier, he says that it is I, in Isaiah 44, 28, God says, it is I who says of Cyrus, incidentally, this is a prophecy that comes 200 years before Cyrus ever becomes king. Okay? So 200 years before Cyrus ever becomes king, listen to what God says through the prophet Isaiah. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desires. And he declares of Jerusalem, that's Cyrus, Cyrus will declare of Jerusalem, quote, she will be built. And of the temple, Cyrus will proclaim an edict, if you will, quote, your foundation will be laid. Okay. So we see that this is, this is a deeper plan of God. This is not just the face value edict of Cyrus for his own benefit. God is behind the scenes pulling the strings, if you will. On some level, God is in ultimate control here. Now, let me turn a corner here. What is the storyteller, the narrator, the one who documented the book of Ezra? What does this storyteller want his immediate readers, those who were originally going to pick up this letter, this document, story behind the story, is the important story. The rest of the story. What's that old guy's name always does the rest of the story on the radio? Paul Harvey. You listen to Paul Harvey? Paul Harvey. Brendan. I know Brendan. Paul Harvey. You ever listen to Paul Harvey? He tells you this long story, and then at the end of it, there's this great... There's this great usually ironic twist, and it just unfolds the whole thing. The narrator in Ezra doesn't need to recount the Edict of Cyrus merely as an objective part of history. What he needs his readers to know is that God is behind this king. There is a king of kings in ultimate control. He is faithful to his word. He said it 70 years I will not leave you. I will not walk away from you completely. I will be back. God is faithful to his word. Okay, so what does the divine storyteller, if, if the narrator of Ezra, if Ezra, we'll just assume it's Ezra here, if he is the immediate storyteller to his readers, let's ask this question on a, on a grander level. What does the divine storyteller who inspired Ezra to write this historical narrative we're talking about God. What does the divine storyteller want us, his future readers, to understand? It is one and the same. God is faithful to his word that deals with the sovereignty of God.
we find that the sovereignty of God seems to be included as a comfort primarily to God's chosen people. It's there to say you don't have to you don't have to fear much longer. It's there to say I have not left you completely. I have not taken my hands off the wheel completely. I'm still here. To us as little children, the sovereignty of God is a great comfort that no matter what the surface scenario or situation is, it can be the worst of the worst. Can you think of anything worse than God saying, I'm going to desolate the temple, I'm going to send you out, spread you among the Babylonians, they're going to try and breed you out of existence. Ezra says, know this, God has not forgotten his promises. He's not left you for good. He is faithful to his promises. He will come through no matter what the apparent situation may be. Rusty, put that quote up on the screen. Let me read this to you. God's sovereignty gives him the innate ability to forever be faithful to his promises, his people, and his plan. And it is that faithfulness that is on primary. See, you've got to remember that for two generations they were in this captivity. And you can imagine that the parents weren't doing a great job of passing down the prophecies of Jeremiah and Isaiah. And so you can just imagine to those children that were born in captivity, there was no hope. There was no, it'll be 70 years. And in the midst of that bad situation, as we sang earlier, okay, come what may, they were in it. They were in the fire. They were in the storm. In the midst of that storm, you can imagine that even if they knew 70 years, that'll be it. You've got to know they had a hard time trusting. Ezra steps on and he says, you can trust God is faithful. What he said, he will do. Seventy years, we get Cyrus, who Isaiah and Jeremiah said would come. He does what God says he'll do, and they get what God says they'll get. Grace, mercy, he will hold out a remnant. What if you yourselves have been completely unfaithful? Can God still find a way to be faithful to His Word? You've got to know He can. All right, I'm going to close here with Isaiah 45. If you want to follow along, flip back. Isaiah 45. I quoted you one phrase out of this. Years before any of this ever took place. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, God's anointed, whom I have taken up by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is... I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. Again, speaking of Cyrus, I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. 
I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Drip down, O heavens, from above and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. And woe to the one who... What are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel... And his maker, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretch out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their host. I have aroused him in righteousness, and I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free. Without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, will come over to you and be yours. They will walk behind you. They will come over in chains and will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you and there is none else, no other God. Truly you are a God who hides himself. O God of Israel, Savior. They will be put to shame and even humiliated, all of them. The manufacturers of idols will go away together in humiliation. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no one else. I have not a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, there is no other. I have sworn by myself, by no other. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and not being turned back. That to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him. All who are angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified. In him, all the offspring of Israel will glory. God is faithful to his word. The one true God will do exactly what he has desired to do. And he will not be thwarted. Let's pray. Father, you are bigger than we know. Your ways are past. You have said you have, what you have said you will do, you will do. What you have promised to your people, you will fulfill. 
while we may be unfaithful, you can be trusted to be faithful. So, Father, we we rest. We rest and we take joy in the comfort that comes in your faithfulness displayed by your sovereignty. In Jesus' name, amen. In the history of Israel, this has been called the second exodus. First exodus, Charleston Heston, out of the wilderness wanderings, out of Egypt. That's the first exodus. The second exodus is the nation in the land, sinful. God says, I'm not going to put up with it. You'll not remain in this land that I have provided for you and be sinful. He sends them away. The Babylonians come and they sweep them away. They desolate the temple. They are again in captivity. They now find themselves in the second exodus, the second redeeming time that God is freeing them from their evil rulers. There is in Scripture a third exodus, I believe, our sin. And God has said, what I said I will do, I have done. He has once again provided a way through the cross, through Jesus, for His his beloved, chosen children to no longer be held captive, but to be free. Jesus quotes Isaiah in Luke 4. Listen to what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Freedom has come, spiritual freedom, permanent and eternal freedom has come via the third exodus, which is Jesus. Scripture would have us to know that He can be trusted. He has fulfilled His promises. He has fulfilled His promises. Hey, if that's you, and you are still being held captive spiritually to your your debt of sin, to that foreign pagan ruler that is our enemy if he still holds you captive and you've yet you've yet to return to the Lord your creator, your maker your father in heaven if you've yet to return the gates are open they've been kicked open via the cross we're going to do one more song we're going to sing of God's faithfulness if you are a believer You let God's faithfulness be a reminder to you of who He is, how big He is, that He has historically, throughout the ages, always been trustworthy. Let that be an encouragement to you. If you've yet to embrace that God, if you've yet to confess your sins and exodus out of your captivity, Jesus is waiting, knocking on your heart's door, saying, today can be the day. I've made the way. If you make that decision, when we're all done here, would you grab Preston and I or Rusty and let us know, let us help you to understand what you've done better. We'd love to celebrate that decision with you. We're going to sing this one last song and we'll be dismissed. Won't you stand with us?